going to look at John chapter 18 from verse 28 and it'll be on the in the Bible in front of you on page 1085. So the reading today is when Jesus goes or is taken to Pilate. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was the early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and the chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? He taunted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Good morning, everyone. Let me pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we do thank you. Though it's wet, cold, it's great to be together. And I thank you for everyone here and for those watching online and do just encourage us as we think about what is the place uh, of the Christian church, your church, in this nation, in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, last year on the 10th of August, I'm sure just about everyone here would have done the same thing, which is to fill in the census. And it's something that happens every five years. Uh, it's a very important thing in the life of the country. And uh, I think at the time of the census, there were 25,422,788 people recorded as living in Australia. It's grown up, I think, about 6% or 8% something. And the census is this fascinating thing. And I know there's that old line, there are um, lies, damn lies, and then the statistics. And uh, anyway, that's a reality. We're going to try and look at some of those realities today because the census gives us economic, social and cultural data about Australia and importantly because of the longevity, you see the way the country is changing. And one of the important things that it reflects on is that of religion. And I'm sure I'm not the only one who would have seen in the news, and I've forgotten my clicker, hang on, uh, headlines like this, and I'll put one up. Have we got the um, screen up, Dylan? Anyway, Australians are increasingly unlikely to worship a God and more likely to come from immigrant families. Now, that's from the ABC News website. Nothing surprising if you'd read the census data. And as a Christian minister, you go, that's not the news we're probably hoping for. And I don't know if I'm not the only one, but I'm sure many of you would have read news articles. I know this weekend alone, uh, it's kind of two weeks out from when the first news came out. There's actually three different articles, one in The Australian, Bernard Salt, a very good demographer, and there's two in the Sydney Morning Herald. And the key number that people are looking at is this one I've got on the screen, uh, that with people who have ticked no religion. And it's worth noting there actually was a financial push by people from, I think, the humanist or rationalist society to try and increase um, this um, box being ticked. And they had it lifted up to the top, which would impact. But I don't think that's the big issue. Um, what we have seen is a growth in the country of people identifying in the census as having no religion. And it did make me pause to think about our country and where are we placed and what is the outlook for the Christian church in Australia? Uh, should we be pessimistic or optimistic? Because when you read the news, the perception is that basically religion is going down and non-religion is going up. And so what are we to make of that? And what is our role now as a church in the society, given the apparent decline of the Christian faith? Well, that's my goal today. Uh, and so strap in. I've got four words to uh, get us to think about, and they are these. We need to be engaged, firstly. Secondly, servants. Third, good losers. And fourth, optimistic. And you might say, optimistic? Yes, we actually should be optimistic, and I'm going to give you some reasons why. But first of all, let's think about that first word, we need to be engaged. And I just want to take you to the commission that we have. And it's worth just, when you read this news, remembering actually who we are and what we've been commissioned to do. And when you read the Gospels, they all finish with a commission from the Lord Jesus. And I'm going to just read a couple of them. Matthew, 18, uh, Matthew 28, 18 is the most famous. Jesus looked at the disciples and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. So we are people who have been commissioned. It's not a suggestion. It's a command uh, to go out to the world and to make followers of the Lord Jesus. Acts 1.8, uh, Luke's commission uh, at the beginning of his second volume to go and be witnesses for the Lord Jesus in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Now, the one I want to put up on the screen is actually from John's Gospel. And here's a different way of recording the commission. And it's very interesting. Um, when you read John's Gospel, Jesus most 
used description of himself, so his self-identification, is as the one who was sent by the Father. Forty different times he describes himself as the one sent by the Father. And he says here at the end, after he's resurrected, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. In other words, I came into the world. You are now sent out into the world as well. And that's who we are. And the reason I bring that to us at the uh, beginning is because as we get this news, there's a sense of which we must not retreat. We've actually got to continue to go into the world and engage with the world. And we need to be actively involved in the world as disciples of Jesus, serving in his name. We cannot withdraw. We need to be both the presence of Jesus in this world and speaking up in this world. I'll talk a bit about that a bit later in terms of what I mean by that. But we actually have a message of hope and life with the gospel that we need to be proclaiming and continue to proclaim because it is a message of hope and of life to this world that is so confused. And we need to be actively living and working in the world so that it's seen and heard. Now, I personally think, in terms of where we are historically here in Australia, as part of what you'd call Western culture, that we're in a period of what I would call significant decline of culture. What strikes me how these days is truth is almost completely relative. The sense that there is objective truth that you understand reality by is just eroding week by week, month by month, year by year. And I can tell you some stories afterwards, I won't go into it now. I think about the, the growth of selfishness and entitlement that is rising up in our society. And I couldn't help but stop and notice uh, Nick Kyrgios, who, I mean, he's not my favourite tennis player. He's a very good tennis player, but he's hard to love. And in his um, most recent match, he was recorded that he was berating his family in the first set because they were not giving him enough support. And I just thought, really? <laughs> and it just was a little microcosm window into the reality of self-entitlement and how it's all about me. And we also live at a time as our culture is declining where there's a loss of community as people become more self-focused. And with that, there's a rise significantly in mental health issues in the community that COVID has only exacerbated. It was already rising, but COVID exacerbated the mental health issues that uh, are being experienced in the community. And so it is a community that has great needs. And when this is what we're living through, what I observe is that Christians can feel under pressure from the growing secularization of the uh, culture around. And the temptation is to retreat to whinge or to complain. As things that we held dear start to disappear. And I want to give you a quote from a very experienced journalist from Melbourne. He was the religious affairs writer for The Age, which I understand is the equivalent of the Herald here in Sydney. And he was in charge of the religious affairs from 2002 through to 2013. His name's Barney Schwartz. Uh, he now does work for the Centre for Public Christianity. And he said this about the age. He said, typically, 
they only covered three religious stories. Priests molesting children, the church in decline, and the troglodyte church holding back women and gays. And he said, that's all you would typically hear from the media. Now, why I raise that is because when you put that alongside the census data, you get this perception about how Christianity is slowly being eroded away in the country. And there is some truth to that. But I want to say it's not the whole story. I want to share with you some uh, interesting statistics from two other studies that have been done. So the census data is this broad thing for Australia that takes in all kinds of things to do with our, who we are. Uh, but there's only a small amount on religion. There's two studies that have been done which give a much broader and deeper view of Christianity and religion in the country currently. Uh, the first is by the Mark McCrindle group. Now, if you're not familiar with Mark McCrindle, he is a Christian. He's one of the leading futurists and demographers and social commentators in the country. He consults to government organisations, to schools, uh, to universities, to ASX-listed companies, and also to churches. And he was commissioned by Olive Tree Media, a Christian organisation, with a study called The Impact of Faith on Australian Society, and did some survey work in relationship to this. And I want you to note what he noted. And this is about um, the impact of faith on Australian society. People are asked, what is the impact of faith on Australian society? Now, 78% of Australians agree that the influence of Christianity has shaped the country. Now, the older you are, the higher that number gets. So if you're in the kind of above 65 age group, it actually is about 90%. Uh, the younger generation is less so. But when you level it all out, 78% of Australians agree that Christianity has influenced the country. 76% believe in varying degrees that it's had a positive impact. Now, some of those are strongly through to less strong, if I can put it that way. But only a quarter thought that the Christian faith has had a neutral or negative impact. And then lastly, 80% agree that the core values of Australian society, such as equal opportunity, honesty, mateship, freedom and dignity of the individual, are influenced by our Christian heritage. Now, it's worth noting this, because that's the perception of Australians about the impact of the Christian faith in the country. In other words, there's a lot of good things that they perceive that Christianity has brought to Australia in shaping us. And into this culture, as we hear these numbers, the last thing we need to do is withdraw. We need to continue to engage and be involved in this world and in this country. But the way we need to do it is as servants. And I've got a number of verses uh, to go through today. The second one is this, Mark 10, 45. And it's a famous engagement between Jesus and his disciples. They're jostling for power. Who will sit at the left and the right of Jesus when he comes into his glory? And he says, no, you're not to be like the rulers of the Gentiles, which is very interesting. Now, don't be like the secular leaders who want to lord it over people. He says, you are to serve, and he has that famous quote, he says, for even the Son of Man, speaking of himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let me ask a question. What is the role or the relationship of the church in relationship to the state? Now, it's hard to give a simple answer here, but I will say a couple of things. 
Firstly, there needs to be a separation of church from the state. We are not the government. And secondly, I hear Jesus' words where he says, don't be like the rulers who lord it over. We're not to be grasping for the levers of power in the state where we are to rather be servants of this nation. That is how the church is best placed. And historically, the church has always done its best work from the edge of society. Whenever the church has been central in trying to control society and run society, it's typically not been a pretty end. Our best work is always on the edges. When we act to mirror this command of Jesus to be a servant. Let me ask the question, what do you think Australians want from the church? Very good question to ask. What do they expect of us? Well, there was a second study done by the National Church Life Survey Group. Now, you probably know them if you've been in churches because every five years they survey church life within church communities. Now, we've unfortunately not been able to do it in this past round because of the COVID impact. But we've been a part of it uh, historically before that. What they also do, apart from surveying churches and church communities, is they run what they call the Australian Community Survey. And they started doing it bi-yearly. They now do it every year. And they survey literally hundreds of people in the community. And it's a very, if I can say, academically um, authentic study to try and understand what the community thinks about God and the Christian faith. And so in 2021, same year as the census, they did this survey. And one of the questions people were asked was this, what roles should religious organisations have in our modern Australian society? What roles should Australian, uh, should religious organisations have in today's society? Now, the top one I haven't put in because it was running funerals and weddings. I mean, that's an obvious one, okay? <laughs> we do our business. <laughs> But have a look at the top five underneath doing our business. It's very interesting. Encourage good morals, support the poor, provide opportunities for worship, give meaning and direction to life and provide social services, i.e. aged care. Now, I just want you to think about that. What is our society saying we should do? Now, that doesn't mean we have to exactly do it, but what is it they're actually wanting from us? If I could summarise it this way... It's to help people materially and spiritually. That's actually what they expect of us. Now, let me show you what the bottom response was, which tells you what they don't want us to do, I think. Convert people to the faith and public commentary on political issues. It's very interesting, isn't it? In other words, we think you should be helping people materially, spiritually. Just don't try and convert me and please stay out of politics. Very interesting. There's stuff to hear there, isn't there? It tells you that we actually have a role to play here in the society. That is best on the edge not trying to hold the levers of power in Canberra or Macquarie Street. 
Now, if I can go back to the McCrindle study, they asked the participants, what would most attract you to investigate the Christian faith? What would cause someone in the community to actually rethink and have a look at the Christian faith? Here's the top two answers. 64% said they would either somewhat or be strongly attracted by seeing first-hand Christians live out a genuine faith. Now, there's something quite damning here. Because what they're saying is if you actually lived <laughs> the way Jesus told you to, we'd be interested to have a look at it. And 60% testimonies from people, either strongly or somewhat, from people who have been changed because of their faith. Now, I want you to think about that. What is our society saying? If you guys lived out what you said you believed, we might be interested to have a look at it. And you see, this is why we've got to be engaged in the world. One of the top ways people come into contact with the gospel is through relationships of people who are living out their faith and whose lives are being changed. And we do that best by serving in this world. Which leads me to the third point, losing well. The um, verse on the screen there is from the Bible reading that was read by Glennis. It's a famous interaction between Pilate and Jesus. Uh, the Jewish leaders had arrested Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane as he finished his time of prayer the night before he was about to die. They interrogate him through the night and in the morning they bring him to Pilate. And they basically want Pilate to sign off on his death warrant, to have him crucified. And to get Pilate, or to manipulate Pilate, is probably a better way of putting it, they understand that the most seditious thing you could claim would be a someone, a messiah figure, a king who would oppose the Caesar. And so they say, this man is trying to be king, Caesar, uh, Pilate. In other words, you should kill him. And so the dialogue, dialogue begins, and Pilate famously asks Jesus, are you then a king? And you get the response, which I've got on the screen, which is his famous words. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. So he doesn't directly answer him. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Now it's interesting, Jesus, Pilate obviously took the response to be that he did see himself as a king, but the king of the Jews, because that's what he had nailed on his cross. But note what Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. Otherwise, I would get my servants to fight. He could have called the angels down. There is no doubt in the absolute world that if Jesus had wanted to resist and overturn the trial, he could have, but he submitted to the Roman injustices of the day and was let out to die. And from an earthly point of view, he lost. He gave in, willingly, because he knew the victory that he had to have was the victory of the resurrection. 
And that would bring forgiveness of sins and hope and eternal life to the world. And that's what he was on about. It's such an important key principle for us to hold on to as we think about engaging with the world. God's kingdom that we are seeking to build here is not a political kingdom. I am not trying to make Australia a Christian country through political means. I am wanting to see people come to faith in Christ and influence this country for good and Christians should be involved in the world, serving the world for good. But by political means, I am not wanting to get involved. And as a church... We do have a voice to speak, and it is a voice to speak, I take it as a Christian, on behalf of those who cannot speak. We should be advocating, yes, for the poor, for the marginalised, for refugees, etc., etc. And there'll be moral issues that we will think and hold strong views on. And we think they are for the well-being of society, but when there's a difference... We've got to be prepared to graciously lose and let government do their business. One of the most difficult things I've been through as a Christian minister here relates to uh, what took place. Sorry, I've, just, I've skipped a verse which I'll come back to with the same-sex marriage debate. Now, if you were here when the debate took place, I spoke on it and spoke on why I was going to vote no uh, for biblical reasons. And I think for the well-being of the country, it was um, to vote no was what I thought was the right thing to do. But I was happy, if I can put it this way, and it might, this might sound strange, I was happy to lose in the sense that God is sovereign. And if that's what the people wanted, we have to let the people accept that and have that. And I went off to Senate that year and discovered that in the dead of night, Standing Committee had authorised a million dollars to be given to the same-sex marriage uh, anti-advertising campaign. And let me just say, I was appalled, absolutely appalled. I have spoken with my bishop and the archbishop about it at the time. And the reason I was appalled was this. If we had a million dollars to spare <laughs> floating around the caches, Seriously, we should have given it to people in need. We could have given it to some gospel workers who can't afford the ministry they're doing. Like there's all sorts of good things we could have done with it. Not for a failed advertising campaign that all the numbers showed you we were going to lose anyway. And all that million dollars spent has done is just perpetuate a perception in the community that we want to boss people around on political issues, and you see it in those stats. It was the worst spend I've ever seen. And as Christians, we have to be prepared to lose. And that doesn't mean we don't hold a position, but it does mean that there's a grace and a winsomeness and a wisdom about when we speak up and when we are silent. Because what we are called to do is to build a kingdom that is not of this world. That is God's kingdom and we are praying that the kingdom of God comes as people bow the knee to Jesus. And I pray that we will have Christians involved in politics who can be an influence for good. 
but we will influence the country by bringing people at a grassroots level to faith and allowing them to live that out in this country and being prepared to lose when things don't go our way. But lastly, we need to be optimistic. Here's another quote. It's from uh, the CBS website. Census data releases confirmed Australia is seeing a growing trend away from religion. The stats suggest people who consider themselves non-religious could become the dominant group in coming years overtaking Christianity. Now, if you want the uh, more detailed numbers, here they are. So the last 10 years, the last three censuses, on the left is people identifying in terms of Christian faith uh, in the country, 61% 10 years ago, five years ago, 52%, 44% in this current census. Uh, against that, the people identifying as having no religion, it started 10 years ago at 22%, went up to 30%, and it's roughly at 40% now. So it's gone up significantly, nearly 10% a year. And that's a reality that we've got to stop and take hold of and reflect on. And it's something we've got to reckon with, without minimising or excusing the numbers. And at one level... There's no doubt in the country there's been a gap between the state of religious affiliation of someone and their actual attendance. Uh, It's what we've called nominalism. And many of the commentators are saying what's happening now is that people who had a nominal faith and a nominal association with the Christian church have effectively said they've given up. And that's absolutely true. And they're saying, actually, I don't identify as having a religious affiliation now. And it's not to say they haven't got a faith. There's an interesting article in the Herald today about someone who ticked the no religion box but still says, I believe in God. But it is to say that their affiliation is no longer in any formal sense with the Christian church. But the question I want to ask is, is this the full story? And one of the um, problems of this number is it's just a very narrow box that people have ticked. It gives you one insight, which is helpful, but it's not the whole story. Now, I'm going to go back to the NCLS study, and it's worth saying the person who conducted the study is a lady called Dr Ruth Powell. She's a very experienced researcher in the whole field of religion in the country. Uh, She's an adjunct professor at Charles Sturt University, uh, who is an expert in terms of social research on the issue of Christianity and religion. And she showed this in a survey that they did, the Australian Community Survey, just in February, which is just six months before the census. Have a look at these numbers. Church service attendance at least once a month. And this is over the last five years. So in 2016, 18% of people were attending church regularly in the sense of at least once a month. In 2018, it had gone up to 20%. In 2019, it gone up to two, uh, 22%. Now, when the pandemic hit, it dropped back to 16%. And last year, it had gone back up to 21%. It's fascinating, isn't it? That it's actually the reverse trend of what's happening with people ticking no religion. So if we can put them together, yes, um, nominalism is dying out, but people who actually believe, if I can use that as a term and are committed to coming to church, is actually slowly growing. Now, what's fascinating is um, when you break these numbers down, and in particular, this last year. So when you look at the numbers of people coming, the 21%, how does that actually flesh out in terms of the different age groups? And this is fascinating. In the 18 to 34 age bracket, 
32% attended at least monthly. 34 to 49, we've got a bunch of people here, 19%. Now put your hand up if you're in the 50 to 64 age bracket. <laughs> you represent 11%. And then the 65 plus 21%. Ask yourself this question, who are the 50 to 65 year olds? I'm going to use Ruth Powell's description, who is the researcher. And it's interesting, she said she has checked these numbers twice to check their accuracy because she said it was actually very interesting. In her words, this is the age group that typically is holding the microphone in our culture today. They're the CEOs. Uh, they're the commentators in the media. They're the journalists. They're the ones who are often saying the church is dying on its way out. Nominalism is definitely dying on its way out. But there is still a faith in Australians that is alive and is actually slowly growing. Now, another church culture commentator is a guy called Mark Sayer. Uh, he's got a brilliant podcast called This Cultural Moment. He's a pastor from down in Melbourne. He said this, the discourse of Australia is driven by inner city Melbourne, which is where he lives, and Sydney, which is all white and secular, but outside the inner city. There's so much diversity. Multicultural Australia is highly religious. There is an incredible story happening in multicultural Australia, but that story is not ever told in the media. It's tricked us into believing that Australia is the post-Christian place. Australia is super religious, but it's not the story we tell ourselves. And so, yes, nominalism is dying out. Yes, no religion is growing. And yes, there are impacts on our country. But there is still significant faith in the country. And the Christian faith is actually slowly growing. And so what you see is there's a difference between perception and reality is what the numbers show us. And it's very interesting, um, there was a YouGov study done in America which points out the way you can have a difference between perception and reality. And they surveyed people about what they thought was the makeup of American society and they asked them, and I'm just gonna read off my notes here, how many Muslims do you think are in America? What percentage? Uh, the perception was 27%, there's actually only 1% in America. What percentage are Asian Americans? Well, the perception what it was 29%, it was actually only 6%. What percentage are black Americans? There was perception was 41%, it's actually only 12. What percession, uh, per percentage identifies gay or lesbian? They thought it was 30%, the actual reality was three. It's fascinating. Now, I mention that because there is a difference between perception and reality, and these numbers from McCrindle and from Ruth Powell and the NCLS give us a different story, but I'm gonna give you a feel for it on the ground. Um, I was talking to two different people about this issue of people identifying as no religion. Uh, one of them is here, one's here, Bruce Baird and um, Nathan Campbell. And uh, they represent two different demographies. Bruce has just recently been away with some of his friends uh, who would previously have identified as typically Catholic and would have ticked the Christian box in the census. But for the first time, tick the no religion box. And I asked Bruce to ask them, 
Why did they do that? Let me just read a summary of some of the things they said. And let me just say, we need to hear this. The, they saw an enormous hypocrisy of the church on social and moral issues. As Catholics, they spoke of the number of pedophile priests that had committed this heinous sin, and then the church not owning up to the responsibility of dealing with it. They also spoke of Christian leaders in evangelical churches being found out to have affairs. Uh, they spoke of the disenfranchisement of gays, bisexuals and women. And they also said the church had become commentators on social and contemporary issues rather than addressing issues of the disadvantage and struggling members of their own community. Now, you might disagree, but we actually need to hear that. And they are people who have ticked the no religion box. But I want to contrast it with Nathan. Um, Nathan, for his fitness, goes to the F45 gym in Manly. I've not yet succumbed to joining Nathan, but anyway, he is the cult leader for F45 here in Manly. And uh, if you want to find out the benefits of it, you can go talk to Nathan. But Nathan has a great time meeting the people there, and they're typically his age group or younger. They represent that group of 32%. And Nathan, we actually watched a webinar about this statistics from NCLS, he said, my experience is very different to what Bruce's is. He said, the people I meet are just very curious. They haven't got a Christian background and they're curious to find out. And it's the exact opposite of Bruce's, of people turning away. It's people who have never had and are wanting to know what it is. And you see, there is concern with the census but there's also opportunity. And that's what the deeper dive in the numbers is showing us, that we actually need to have an optimism that there's still people in this country who are searching, who are wanting to know and who are open and who, if they're invited, it's amazing how many will actually come, particularly from the younger generation. And so if I can sum it up, Australia is less Christian than previously, but the nation is not closed to the gospel. There is a knowledge gap about Jesus and the gospel as people have less formal association with the church. And so what is critical is relationships that we are in the world serving and living out the Christian faith in a vibrant, attractive way. There will be challenges, but there's also opportunities. And what we need to be doing is being engaged in the world with a vital faith and testimony and serving people where we can and bearing witness to the good news about Jesus. And if I can finish with the words from Romans that we've been travelling through, and this is my own testimony. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation. And my experience is that a winsomely lived Christian life in this world today opens up opportunities for gospel ministry in a way that has always been the case. I'm going to stop and pray. Father, we just thank you uh, for the data and the people who've put their time into doing it. And at this particular point in our history as a nation, help us to be engaged, to go out as servants who happily lose so that we might shine your gospel, your love, your grace, your truth in this world. Doing what you've called us to do, to be your people, on the edges of the world, witnessing to who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.
Q&A? If anyone's got any questions, just put your hand up. Up the back. Jay. Bruce, you touched on the shifting multicultural and multi-religious profile of yep. this country. Um, as we become less and less a Christian nation, yep. in inverted commas, what do you think the implications are for us as a church and our approach to sending missionaries overseas? Uh, as in, should we still send them? Or just what are the, what are the implications in, in your mind? Um, look, I think we've... We, We've still got to send missionaries overseas because there's parts of the, of the world, like significant parts of the world, that still need the gospel. And so we absolutely still need to be sending missionaries out, um, but we need to be redoubling our efforts to do mission within, <laughs> is how I'd put it. It's one of the reasons why I'm very committed to church planting. Um, it's one of the most effective means of mission is to plant new communities of faith in areas where there's very little gospel witness. Um, we're finishing up... Uh, with Marsden Park this year. They've um, got themselves up and running and uh, literally uh, when one of my parish council members gets back I've charged him with looking at who is the next church plant that we can partner with uh, in areas out where there is very little gospel witness. So it's both and. quiet this morning. There's one here, Mike. That was a very good message, Bruce. Thank you very much. What do we do about the hypocrisy that uh, in the age group between 50 and 64 to actually address some of those issues? Um, what's interesting in the stats, and I, I've got to go back and have a look at it, is this. When people meet genuine Christians, it, it softens their perception. And the best thing we can do is ourselves live in a way that commends the gospel by living a life that exemplifies Jesus Christ in the flesh. And when people from the community meet that and they get to know you, it actually does have a power to break down barriers. Now, it, it doesn't excuse behaviour. Um, it is a barrier to overcome because there's, there's nothing worse, and I've seen it where, um, as the minister, people have talked to me about the hypocrisy they've seen, and it's a significant barrier to overcome. Um, it will only be overcome, I think, by those people rubbing shoulders closely with people who are genuine in their faith. And that's what the McCrindle research showed, that it's actually... That's the most powerful thing, is people meeting genuine Christians who genuinely love and are being genuinely transformed in a way that they actually stand out, that they are different, and they point to Jesus, not in a forceful way. There needs to be a winsomeness about how we articulate our faith. Um, I don't, like the last thing people want is to be shoved, it's shoved in their throats. And that's that number, 15%, don't convert me, which I take it is don't try and shove it down my throat. But we've got to pray for them so that they actually are wanting to inquire. And that's actually what 1 Peter 3 says, um, live in a way such that they ask you for the reason you've got hope. And then when they ask you, be ready to answer. 
And so we've got to live lives that actually are distinctive and different. But I I can't emphasise enough, it's the personal relationships in the world with non-Christian friends that we hang out regularly with and that we live distinctively with. Thanks, Mike.